Good morning. It's good to be back with you today. I'm always amazed at God's providence. My message today is going to be on 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we're thankful for your care and affection for us, for your grace, for your mercy, for the loving kindness that surrounds us, for thy Holy Spirit. We pray that you open our eyes, open our ears to hear what you have for us this day. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter 18, I'm going to just read the first six verses. Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Eli, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made, for until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went, and he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. I say I'm always amazed at the providence of God because it happens to be one of those doctrines that while we typically talk about and sometimes preach on along with the sovereignty of God, rarely do we trust in it to get us through our day-to-day lives. We live in a fallen world. And as a result of that, our fallenness has a tendency to bring uncertainty. Uncertainty, if it is not handled appropriately, leads to fear. Fear paralyzes, and that leads to sin. So at the end of the day, we have to know how to overcome fear, particularly fear of the future. We're going to see how King Hezekiah here handled his situation. He is noted as being one of the few kings where no one who came before him served the Lord more than he, nor no one who came after him served the Lord more than he. So we can learn some lessons from King Hezekiah and how he responded in his dire circumstances, and they were dire So I said we live in a fallen world and there's all kinds of fears. Whether we have fear of that medical diagnosis coming on, whether we fear whether our children are saved or our parents, whether we fear our financial situation, the world around us is degenerating, including our physical bodies, and it can create a whole lot of fear. Some of you are old enough to remember, as I am, 
when the year 2000 came and we had to deal with this thing called Y2K. Starting in 1997 and ending on December 31st, 1999, people were getting all prepared for Y2K. It's when the clocks turned from December 31st, 1999 to one minute after midnight on the year 2000. When that happened, people thought that planes were going to literally fall out of the air. Nuclear bombs were going to be detonated. Power grids were going to completely collapse. Mortgage loans and the whole financial system was going to go derelict and you were going to be responsible. The fact is that people responded to that. It was the end of the world. And there have been others that predicted the end of the world before Y2K came along. But people were looking at it as the end of the world. And there was a couple by the name of Bruce and Diane Eckert. You can look this up in a January issue of Time Magazine in 2000. They spent their time stockpiling canned food, of course, conducting emergency response drills, learning how to shoot firearms, taking all their life savings, turning it into gold, learning basic first aid as well as dentistry skills. This is a quote out of that magazine. They were preparing for the end of the world as they knew it, whether or not there was any legitimacy to Y2K or not, or what prompted it, what started it, I'm not sure. But it was a very real crisis because the government spent $40 billion fixing their computer programmers uh, uh, because of the perceived threat. It caused millions of people to not fly on December 31st, real enough for people like Bruce and Diane Eckert to take drastic measures to prepare. All of this was preparation out of Fear. Now, I want to remind you that this fallen world that I had mentioned that we live in, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, realize this, that in the last days, we're 2,000 years closer to the last days than when Paul wrote this. Difficult times will come when men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. Always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. In verse 13, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Evil men will proceed from bad to worse. I don't care what your eschatology is. I'm not very optimistic about this world. Everything around us is degenerating, is deteriorating, is going awry in some way, shape, or form, forgetting about the day-to-day -day problems that we have of all the things that I just mentioned. We have to overcome all of these fears of the future and the uncertainty of the future with faith. The question is, what about that faith? 
whether it's any of these things that we've talked about, as insignificant as they may seem, they do cause us fear. We're not the only ones who lived in fear. We're not the only ones who live in scary times. As I mentioned, Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 19, 1-20, which you just read. Specifically, he was being overwhelmed by the Assyrian army. His circumstances were horrifying. He had every disadvantage, and we're going to look at some of these. He had no advantages, and what did he do? He acted in faith. You see, faith necessitates us acting. Show me your faith by your works. We have to act in faith. Acting in faith means we will honor God. So often, and listen, I've done an awful lot. In 20 years as a prison chaplain, I've counseled a lot of men and their families. Most of the problems that we have to deal with are consequences of sin. Sin is a result of not choosing to honor God in the decisions that we make. So I'm saying to you that faith is acting in a way that honors God with our decisions. It's not acting on our feelings. It's not acting necessarily in my best interest. It's acting in a way that's going to honor God. Now, I could have five different paths to choose from. And I tell men all the time, choose the one that is going to be the most God-honoring, regardless of what it looks like, regardless of the immediate pain that it may cause, regardless of the fact that it may ostracize you from your present company, regardless of any of those things, we have to honor God in our faith. As I said, I've counseled an awful lot of men in my time, and I... Very early on in any kind of counseling session, I ask them if they want to honor God with their decision. What is the motive behind their choices or impending choices that they're going to make? Oftentimes, they'll say, oh yeah, we want to honor God. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't obey? So you see, if you want to honor God, regardless of how much it might hurt you, regardless of the fact that you're going to have to deny some indulgent feeling, regardless of, the, of what it looks like, if you want to honor God, it may, in fact, cost you. Let's not forget, I'm reminded, Moses in the Red Sea. The Red Sea didn't part until they came right up to the Red Sea. Don't forget, they wandered for months, they come up to the Red Sea. They see the, the Pharaoh's army behind them, mountains on the right, mountains on the left. They're standing in front of the Red Sea, nowhere to go. The sea parts as they approach it, and Moses raises his staff. It's always at the last minute that God delivers, and so we have to sit in the uncertainty, but acting in faith gives us confidence because if we don't act in faith, if we don't honor God, then what happens is we are denying his will, we are denying his power, and denying his desire to deliver his children from whatever your circumstances are. So what did Hezekiah do? He did three things. 
And I'm going to talk quickly about them. First, he relied on his faith as his foundation upon which he acted. And he did act, and we're going to see how he acted, which is our example. Second, he understood that the enemy lies. We have a tendency to want to believe the lies of the enemy, and we're going to see why, because they're so much easier to believe the lies of the enemy than to act in faith. And third, Hezekiah used the means of grace to access God's promises. Now, very quickly, we're just going to go over some context. In 2 Kings chapter 13, Elisha dies and everything went downhill from there. Chapter 14, Israel defeats Judah. As you know, it was a divided kingdom at this point in time. Chapter 15, there was a list of kings of Israel, and they all did evil in the sight of the Lord. By the time chapter 17 comes around, God has had enough. And the downfall of Israel is recorded. The Assyrians can't carried off the ten tribes to exile in 722. In chapter 18, Hezekiah becomes king. He reigned for 29 years. And in the 14th year of his reign, the Assyrians came knocking on his door. Sennacherib came up against Judah. In verse 17 of chapter 18, Sennacherib sent three emissaries, along with an army of 185,000, as we read today, to Hezekiah. Rabshakeh, who was the spokesperson for Sennacherib, was the person who was the instrument that the devil used to compromise, try to compromise Hezekiah. Being afraid does not mean you act in fear. We have to understand that. Being afraid is normal. We act in faith. We can be afraid, but we have to act in faith. And acting in faith means honoring God with our decisions. So what are we supposed to do? As I said, the first thing, we overcome fear starts with a firm foundation in our faith. Let's not forget the disciples said, grow our faith. Lord, grow our faith. Who can understand these things? Don't forget it only takes the faith of a mustard seed to move mountains, Jesus said. The soldiers said, Lord, help mine unbelief when it came to bringing his daughter to Christ to heal her. So we can have a large faith, a small faith, but at the end of the day, you're given enough faith in order to deal with your circumstances. God guarantees that. And I'm reminded of the eighth chapter in the book of Luke, where Jesus was with the disciples in the boat going to the other side of Galilee, and a storm came up. And it was a ferocious storm, and Jesus was asleep in the hold of the boat. And the disciples woke him. And said, Lord, we perish. What was Jesus' response? Oh, ye of little faith. That's all he said. Oh, ye of little faith. The fact is that they were not supposed to be looking 
at how high the waves were. They should not have cared about how strong the wind was blowing or how deep the water was. Oh, ye of little faith. These are circumstances engineered by God to grow you up. Oh, ye of little faith. Fixing our eyes on the wind or the depth of the waves and the and uh, how deep the water is and all of the circumstances that are going against us, we should be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. See, the problem with keeping our eyes on our circumstances is that we get into fortune-telling. And by that I mean we create our own future because we have a tendency to obsess on all the things that are going wrong. This is going wrong, so if that happens, then this. And if this, then that. We start telling the future. See, rather than having faith in God and putting these circumstances in His hands and letting Him work out His predetermined end through His providence, which are your circumstances, we start creating our own future. The problem with that is that all of our prognostications are absent the promises of God. And the promises of God are given to us to live upon and build a life on. Let's not forget, sovereignty from before the foundation of the world has determined the end. Providence determines how that end comes to pass in your life and in mine and in Hezekiah's. The first truth to overcoming fear of the future is to begin with that foundation. Hezekiah ruled Judah when Israel was divided, as we already know. During Hezekiah's reign, the northern kingdom had been destroyed by the Assyrians. However, we read, Scripture says Hezekiah ruled the southern kingdom differently, and he did. Notice he did. He acted. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. In contrast, the northern kingdom was taken away because the Israelites, they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. So you see, no matter how compelling the circumstances may be to get off track relative to our faith and honoring God, you have to have as your only agenda to honor God regardless of your circumstances. If you have any other agenda, trouble is going to come your way. And it's not trouble in a good way. With honoring God as your agenda, even if you make the wrong decision, and this is my opinion, but as a blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled, adopted child of the Son of the Most High God, you cannot make a wrong decision if you have on your heart to honor God through that decision. And if it is wrong, God will lead you out of that situation and put you into circumstances that he wants. So you see, he did, when I say he acted, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did something. He took down the high places that worship false gods. 
He smashed relics, the bronze serpent that Moses used in the desert. The reason he did that was because people were worshiping that statue and forgetting the God who healed them when their sickness. I believe that's the reason why we don't have the original manuscripts today. I believe that's the reason why all of these relics that the Church of Rome claims to belong to, even pieces of the cross of Christ. I don't believe that the Shroud of Turin is real. If any of that stuff was proved to be real, we would be worshiping those things. And in fact, there are people that do worship those things as opposed to the God of heaven. Hezekiah was well, well ahead of his time by understanding our weaknesses and worshiping the thing that we can see. See, that's walking by sight, not by faith. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. He was a faithful king, and we need to strive to be faithful husbands, faithful wives, faithful employees. We, in spite of our circumstances, that faithfulness will be demonstrated by the way we act. We don't sit and wring our hands in fear. We act to honor God. We speak truth and we do truth in all of our circumstances. Trusting the Lord, he rebelled against the Assyrians, defeated the Philistines, which we read about. A bold move considering that the Assyrians just wiped out the northern kingdom. And as we read, the Syrians came knocking on the door of Jerusalem with at least 185,000 troops and a negotiation team to lay down the terms of surrender. So Hezekiah's negotiation team goes out and meets the Assyrian embassies. Hezekiah is in a terrible place. He has minimal troops. He's vastly outnumbered. His treasuries are emptied. He can't even buy off Rabshakeh and the king of Assyria. He has no history of success. He has no negotiation strength. Do you think that Hezekiah would have been able to weather all of these storms from tearing down the high places, smashing a relic Moses used to heal all the Israelites from their snake bites, Seeing 185,000 troops surrounding your city, knowing they just defeated every single one of their enemies in their path, do you think all of that would have been possible if he hadn't held fast to the Lord? The answer is no. Another example of that is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's the book of Habakkuk. Don't turn there. We're just going to give an abbreviated study summary of this book. Habakkuk was the prophet to Judah, and he was predicting the demise of Judah 125 years after Hezekiah. And he starts out with a series of questions. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and thou wilt not hear? 
I cry out to thee, violence, yet thou dost not save. Why dost thou make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? He goes on to talk about the Chaldeans and how they're going to come and ravage and rape and pillage Jerusalem and all of Judah. His second question, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. Thou, O Lord, has appointed them to judge. Talking about the Chaldeans. Habakkuk knows the Chaldeans are coming to judge and execute God's judgment on Judah. Beginning of chapter 2, he says, I will stand on my guard post, station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. And God gives him a vision. And it's not a good one. And the vision begins, Woe to him who increases what is not his. They've got a problem with greed. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. There's extortion and exploitation. Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. There's all kind of violence in Jerusalem. Verse 15, Woe to you who make your neighbors drink. Rampant immorality is going on. Verse 19, Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a dumb stone, Awake, there is idolatry. This sounds like our culture today, doesn't it? Chapter 3, Habakkuk prays, and he says, Lord, I have heard the report about thee, and I fear. And he starts a prayer by saying, in wrath, remember mercy. He goes on to cite other circumstances that the Chaldeans are going to bring upon the nation of Judah. In verse 16, now listen. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At, at the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. Habakkuk is trembling over this vision, over the death and destruction that's going to come to Judah at the hand of the Chaldeans because of their disobedience to God's covenant. In my place I tremble, decay enters my bones, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. For the people to arise who will invade us, though the fig tree should not blossom. And listen, though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Facing this impending doom, expressing his fear, he demonstrates his faith and he says, I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Though the fields are not producing any food, there's no cattle in the stalls, there's no fig on the trees, there's no, there's no oil, because the olive trees are not giving any, yet I will exalt in the Lord. The Lord God is my strength. The response to catastrophe, the response to circumstances that are not pleasant, 
that in fact are injurious, that you may see are absolutely devastating. The proper response in faith is, yet I will exalt in the Lord. That's the proper response. We don't sit in a corner and wring our hands wondering what God is going to do. We don't have to. That's none of our business. What God is going to do is God's business. My job is to respond appropriately to the circumstances, whatever they are. And the umbrella response to any of our circumstances is the same as the prophet Habakkuk. Yet I will exalt in the Lord and rejoice in the God of my salvation. The only hope, the only foundation is faith and acting faith in the living God that he will do what he says he's going to do. Acting in faith. The second thing we can learn One way to overcome fear of the future and our circumstances from King Hezekiah is to understand that the enemy is going to lie to us. Sometimes we say that glibly. Well, that's, you know, that's a lie of the devil. Yeah, in many cases it is a lie of the devil. He is active in lying to us. He is the father of lies. Why should we believe anything that he says. So the second thing we see in overcoming the fear of the future is that the enemy is always going to try to tear down our trust in God. Actually, in two ways. First, he's going to try to tear your trust down in God is to tell you half-truths. Half-truths. They're close to the truth. Well, maybe I could do this. See, it's always easier to compromise with the devil because the path is easier. You know what the devil is taking part in in terms of telling you because the path is easier than doing the thing that you have determined will honor God. Back up to verse 19. Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? He's basically asking Hezekiah, how do you think you're going to get out of this situation, Hezekiah? Why aren't you afraid of what is to come? And then Rabshakeh lists all the reasons he should fear. Do you think mere words are a strategy and power for war? In other words, do you think you can trust in your own words to give you victory in this fight, Hezekiah? Go ahead, trust in yourself, see what's going to happen. In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Verses 20 and 21 in 2 Kings chapter 18. So Rabshakeh says, if you aren't going to trust in your own words, then what? Are you going to turn to those around you? Good luck with that. Egypt will knife you in the back when they choose. Let's not forget Hezekiah's father turned to Egypt. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, our God, is not he the high places and altars that Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah, to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. 
You tore down the high places, but now you're bringing people to the altar to worship in Jerusalem? Are you sure you don't want to receive from some glory for that, Hezekiah? He goes on to tell them he would give them 2,000 horses. Even if they had the fighters to sit on them, if they turned to Assyria. And here's the maximum lie to really bring it home to Hezekiah. He claims, Rabshakeh claims, that the Lord himself has told the Assyrians to come and destroy Judah. The ultimate lie. Rabshakeh is saying, God told us to do this. Now here's the problem. Much of what Rabshakeh has said is true. Judah does not have the numbers to fight. Egypt will probably turn on them. Hezekiah's words and what treasury he has hasn't solved this problem. And God did use the Assyrians to judge the northern kingdom of Israel. Much of it is true. They are defeated from a worldly perspective. See, it doesn't matter what the world thinks. They are defeated from a worldly perspective. You can be perceived as having been defeated. Don't let the enemy tell you you are defeated, whether it's a medical condition, a financial condition, a family condition, a marriage condition. You are not defeated. We cannot believe the lie that there is no hope. There is always hope when we have as our agenda to honor God going forward and acting in faith. Any voice that you hear that's going to deter you from acting in faith to honor God is going to highlight your circumstances because your circumstances are horrible. Just like Hezekiah's. Most of the time, your circumstances are going to be less than ideal. Most of the time. So you're going to begin to doubt the character of God. They're going to remind you of past failures that have already been forgiven. And pretty soon you're going to come up with an image, a self-image problem. So many people... God used most of the people, most of the major characters in the Old Testament that God used had issues that caused them to doubt themselves even when used by the hand of God. Hezekiah's group knows that some of the people of Judah are going to be prone to believe these half-truths as they're screaming them to the wall of Jerusalem, the people sitting on the wall. So as good shepherds of their flock, what do they do? They asked the Assyrians to speak in Aramaic, which was the diplomatic language of the time, and not in the common language of, of Hebrew. So what does this do? This provokes the enemy to scream even louder. And now he, what he does is he offers terms of peace. The enemy offers terms of peace. You could get out of this situation if you only do this. You can ease the pain if you only do this. You can make things so much simpler for yourself 
Avoid the stress and the anxiety if you only do this. The problem is that only doing this will be compromising your faith. Compromise is always the softer, gentler, more socially acceptable path to take when confronted with uncomfortable, undesirable circumstances or consequences. So here's what Rabshakeh says. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine. Each one will eat his own fig tree. Each one of you will drink water out of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land a land of grain and wine and a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Look at what he is offering. The enemy is offering them security, hope, sustenance, stability, and life. The enemy is offering the people of God the same things that God is offering them. Now look, if you were a Judean looking out at the fields covered with 185,000 soldiers, and then you look back at your own people cowering behind the walls of the city, that deal would start sounding pretty good to you. All they needed to do to obtain this peace, this imitation peace. Let's not forget, Jesus said, my peace I give you, my peace I leave you. Not as the world gives. You cannot obtain the peace of God through compromise with the enemy. Always you must act in faith. How do you know you're acting in faith? Because it's decision that's going to honor God. You make the best decision you can based on the facts as you have them, and then you leave the results in God's hands. We're not fortune tellers. We act in faith. And so I say, oh God, what about this? I've got choice A, B, and C. This one will make this much more money. This one, these circumstances. This one will honor you. I better choose C. Or I'm bringing consequences on myself. It will be affliction from God's hand this time around. All you have to do is not believe that the Lord will deliver them. That's all you got to do. You got to believe that God's not going to deliver you from this circumstance. That God doesn't have the power to deliver you. What are your circumstances right now that are going through your mind that you're doubting about? Do you not think God has the power to deliver you? We can rattle them off again whether it's health, finances, marriage, you name it. Employment, children. Does God not have the power or does he not have the will to deliver you? As I read my Bible, my 66 books of, this, of the Bible here are full of promises. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. I can count on his promises. His loving kindness surrounds me. His mercy surrounds me. It's focused on me like a laser beam. Why should 
I doubt. I have to take a digression here. Talk about the mercy of God for his children. We won't read the whole thing, but in your spare time, at some point today, read Psalm 136. It's 26 verses, and after every single verse we read, for his loving kindness, translate that, mercy is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, his loving kindness is everlasting. To him alone does great wonders, his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the great lights, his loving kindness is everlasting. Verse 10, we begin things that we just can't quite seem to put together. To him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn, his loving kindness is everlasting. To whom was his mercy everlasting? Was it to all the Egyptians of whom the firstborn were slain? With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who divided the Red Sea, his loving kindness is everlasting. He overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his mercy is everlasting. Was it everlasting to Pharaoh and his army that he overthrew in the Red Sea? To him who smote great kings, his loving kindness is everlasting. Was his kindness and mercy everlasting to the kings and the families of the kings that he slaughtered? His loving kindness is everlasting. And then we find his loving kindness is a heritage to Israel, his servant. Regardless of anything else, you can count on his mercy. You can count on his everlasting loving kindness to see you through the circumstances that he has engineered to grow you up in the grace and knowledge of his son and transform you into his likeness. So there's really nothing new with Satan. He doesn't have any new tricks. It's the same tactic he took to deceive Eve. Does God really care about you? Hath God really said this? It's all about deception. Even to Jesus, he offered Jesus dominion over everything that he can see, as if it wasn't under God's reign already. The enemy, the devil, has nothing to offer us except that which rightfully and solely belongs to God to begin with. He will try to convince you in your fear to trust him as the giver of security. But he only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He will prey on your uncertainties of the future and all of your what-if scenarios that come to mind until we bend the knee 
to the prince of this world. One other example, I've used this before, but it is so illustrative. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they're on their way to the fiery furnace, heated multiple times stronger than it usually is, they said to Nebuchadnezzar, we will not bow the knee. Our God can deliver us, but if he does not, we will not bow the knee. Now I have to believe that in their mind as they're headed toward this furnace, they had some issues. It would be a whole lot easier to just bow the knee. It would be a whole lot easier to say, yes, we'll give allegiance to the gods of Babylon and avoid being thrown into the furnace. But you see, oftentimes our miracle happens in the furnace as it did for them. They refused to bow the knee. They refused to compromise. They refused to listen to the enemy and got thrown in the furnace and that's where their miracle happened. There was not three in the furnace. There was four. And by the way, that fourth person in the furnace is still waiting in the furnace for when it's your turn. You will get thrown in the furnace if you choose God over the enemy. If you choose to always honor God in your actions, I guarantee you there is a furnace in your future. Finally, the last point, we overcome fear through the means of grace. In the face of all these Twisted words that Rabshakeh thrown at Hezekiah. How does the king respond? He responds by seeking out the Lord in worship, prayer, scripture, and good counsel. All means of grace. Chapter 19, verse 1, As soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Worship is the one way God reminds his people that he is God, we are not. That he is in control and we are not. Fear of the future means nothing as God reminds us of his sovereignty and his providence. And by the way, Everything that happens to his children is good, holy, right, and true. When I got diagnosed with prostate cancer, the first thing you want to say is, why me? This isn't, what, what did I do? You see, if we have difficulty accepting affliction from the, from the hand of God, we have no problem accepting the benefits and the blessings from the hand of God, but when affliction comes from that same hand, we have a problem with it. When I had my heart operation, it was the same thing. I had a thyroid storm. I'm in the hospital for that. I don't understand that. It wasn't too long ago I had to have a cardiac ablation. I had to do the 39 treatments of radiation for the cancer. All of these things cause us to question and doubt the character of God. Through it all, we need to stand and say, His loving kindness surrounds me. These circumstances engineered 
for his glory. All things are engineered for his glory, the good of his children, and the spread of his kingdom. The movement of the stars in the sky to the dust on the earth, all of it foreordained from before the foundation of the world for his glory, the good of his children, and the spread of his church. So he worshipped. After running to worship, Hezekiah then seeks good counsel, and he sent Eliakim to Isaiah. What did Isaiah say? Isaiah's response as he speaks God's word to Hezekiah is the pattern by which God deals with all of our fears. Listen, tell me if you haven't heard this before. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words you have heard. It's the same pattern all throughout Scripture. Don't fear your consequences because I will act on your behalf. Moses is facing Og, the king of Bashan, on the way to the promised land. The Lord says to Moses, do not fear him. I have given him into your hand. Deuteronomy 20, Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes to fight. David says to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Do we get it? Do not be afraid. It is God who fights for us. Isaiah 41, Fear not, I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. I quoted this earlier. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Are you telling me that God's, when he said in Isaiah 41, fear not, I'm with you, that he's not going to be with you today? Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. Is he not your God today? I will strengthen you. Will he not strengthen you? I will help you. Will he not help you? I will uphold you. Will he not uphold you? Of course. Of course he will. Now apply this pattern to your own life. Don't be afraid of a market crash. I'll provide for your every need. Don't be afraid of tribulation and suffering. I've overcome the world. Don't be afraid of the direction this world is headed. In the end, I will dwell with my people. Don't be afraid of your weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Do not be afraid of your anxious thoughts. I will guard your heart and mind in Jesus, my son, and give you peace, God says. Don't be afraid of losing your salvation. I will never blot your name out of the book of life. Don't be afraid of the future. I will come again and make all things right. Let God's word remind you today that whatever it is you are fearful of, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will strengthen you. He will uphold you. He will fight for you. He will give you the victory. He has and will defeat any sin that tempts you to despair because he has declared that it is finished. Lastly, Hezekiah turns to prayer. After their first meeting, Reb Shekhar returns to Hezekiah trying to cast more fear in God's people. This time he's more desperate and offensive. But in the face of yet another attack, Hezekiah goes to prayer 
we're told that he spreads his fear out to the Lord and lifts his voice in prayer. Listen to this prayer. O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. All the words you hear in your ears by the devil telling you to doubt, to fear, to not trust God. All they are is so that you will mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. That's from 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 15 to 19. He could have been paralyzed in his fear. He could have looked inward. He could have stored up weapons sent to Egypt like his father did. Instead, he turned to the only one who could save him, the Holy One of Israel. And what do you rest this trust of yours? If you rest your trust on anything that is not Jesus, you are building a house on sand. When the winds of affliction blow, the house is not going to stand. But if you look to God from a heavenly perspective, your future is secure. As someone once wrote, our ultimate hope is not in our ability to figure out the future. Our ultimate hope is in God, who holds the future in his sovereign and loving hands. God is for you, Romans 8.31. He has good planned for you, Romans 8.28 and Ephesians 2.10. He will never leave you, Hebrews 13.5, and he will stop at nothing to deliver you from your enemies. I'll conclude by reminding you what Paul said in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our instruction that through patience and comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. Go back and consider the life of Hezekiah, his circumstances, and where he put his hope. He acted in faith to honor the living God. Let's pray.